0: Hello and welcome to Borderlines. I'm Stephen Murrens. On today's episode, I am joined by Marina Sedai of Sedai Law to discuss different myths about Canada's immigration system. Marina is an immigration lawyer and the past national chair of the Canadian Bar Association Immigration Section, a role that she served in from 2018 to 2019. She's also a past provincial chair of the CBABC Immigration Law Section. Uh, Marina can be found on Twitter at at Marina Sedai, M-A-R-I-N-A-S-E-D-A-I. Deanna is off today. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review on iTunes. I can also be reached at steven.murins at larley.com, S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. So you were with CBSA 20 years.
1: Yeah, just about 20 years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And over, I'm just looking at your uh, LinkedIn, it's border services officer, intelligence analyst and inland enforcement officer. And I think a great starting point would actually just be to go chronological and kind of like an overview of your career and what the difference between those three positions are.
1: It's a lot, a lot of difference. It's it's all intertwined after at some point, but it's it's really different from all three of them. Yeah, um, I well, I started as a student. Um, one summer, I decided to apply for the um, graduate student program on uh, on the Government of Canada website, and they sent me a whole bunch of different uh, options of jobs I could do for the summer. Uh, One of them was with archives. Uh, The other one was with Parks Canada. And then this one showed up as the student customs inspector. I had no idea what that was. So uh, i talked to my dad about it. And that day he's like, well, let me show you. So we were about 45 minutes from the border at the time. We jumped in the car and we drove to the border. And he says, there it is. That's what it is. That's really
2: amazing.
0: So you hadn't seen the border before.
1: I I had seen it when I was a kid.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, we had driven through the border when I was younger, but I had not really I had never been on the plane pretty much before that. Wow. I'd never traveled outside of Canada in the United States at the time. So, yeah, I kind of had an idea what the customs inspector was, but no, nope, not really.
2: That's really yeah. neat. So How when I this... got
1: there. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. So when I got there, I just I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. So I decided to apply for that one. I went through the process, and they kept me.
0: Is that a summer job when you were in school, or were you working part-time? It was a summer job.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, I started a summer job. I started in the summer of 2000. And um, once the summer got to the end, they decided to keep a few students on weekends after. So all the way through university, I worked as a customs officer, a student customs officer.
0: Yeah. And we've in talked way. about this before on the show, how it was around 2000, in the early 2000s was when it shifted from uh, Citizenship and Immigration Canada doing the border to mm. CBSA becoming its own thing. We're, and you were a border services officer during that time. Did yeah, you notice? Exactly. it? Like, was it noticeable, the shift, or how did that actually impact your day to day?
1: Well, if you look the week that we are today, right, September 11th changed everything.
0: Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah, you were there September 11.
1: September September 11, 2001, I um I was in university. Uh, I was supposed to go to school that morning. And I got I got a call at home uh, from my mom. My mom's like, "Did you see what happened? There's some guy that hit a tower in New York City with a plane." And the first thought that came that came through my mind was like, "Well, some guy ran his Cessna into the Empire State Building." And as I turned the TV on, I saw the second tower got hit. That I'm like, oh my God, what just happened? And it's about 10 minutes later that I got a phone call from uh, one of my uh, superintendents and I was working in La Colle at the time. And the superintendent was like, "Um, what are you doing today? I'm like, well, I'm going to school. She's like, no, you're not. You're coming down to work. So I didn't go to school that day. Jumped in my car and drove all the way to the border. It was complete chaos. Everything was closed. Nothing was moving. There was lineups of cars like crazy. People were outside, didn't know what was happening. Looking at where people trying to walk across the border because they couldn't drive with their cars. We wouldn't let anybody in. And that, that's really where I saw the big shift in, in, the, in what CBSA was. That they, Well, it wasn't even CBSA at the time. It was Canada Customs and Revenue Agency. That's yeah. who I first started working for. And Citizenship and Immigration Canada was doing the immigration part at the border at the time. Uh, Two different uniforms, two different groups. Um, But starting after that, after September 11, we started wearing bulletproof vests. We started checking trunks of every car that would come into Canada and make sure that there was nobody hiding in the trunk or no bombs or no anything. Because before that, Basically, CCRA was tax collection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was more emphasis put on, oh, uh, did you buy more than the $50 you're allowed over 24 hours? Right. Then are you a terrorist? Are you bringing drugs into Canada? Are you an illegal immigrant? Are you trying to smuggle somebody in? And so gradually after this happened, this is how I started seeing the shift. And I think it's December 2003 that CBSA was created. And that's when everything was put together, which is customs and immigration. All the enforcement of immigration at the border and the facilitation and everything went to CBSA. And that's, that's how it really started. That's I Yeah, I was there and I saw it all uh, move from one to the other. Wow. What was
0: the uh, record sharing like then between Canada and the U.S.? Because now when Americans enter, it seems like CBSA has automatic access to... Uh, U.S. criminal record databases. Was it the same back then?
1: Uh, on the immigration side, it was, it was still possible to obtain that information, right? The NCIC network was still available. There yeah. was still communication between the two countries. But I think that what happened on that day, on September 11th, has reinforced the relationship between the two countries and the will and the way that they wanted to share information
2: with each mm-hmm. other to be better prepared. What was the training that you what like what kind of training did you receive before you began your work uh, at the border? Um,
1: The big difference when I started than it is now is that I um, when I was first hired, I was sent to a two week training in some uh, community hall in the small little town of Lacalle with two uh, customs inspector at the time that were just teaching us for two weeks how to do
2: the job mm-hmm. then and from what would there you say, oh sorry go ahead
1: then from there we just went and it was a an on-the-job training so i didn't go to the cbsa college until three years into wow. starting
2: and what would you say was the overall focus at that time you're saying that it was very much based on um you know Uh, on the customs component or was it fairly
1: um... well it was it was completely separated at the time right so the only immigration as a customs inspector you do was primary was to make sure well is this a Canadian citizen is it a permanent resident or are they visitors then the visitors do they have the proper documentation to come in Do they have visas do they have identification and if not well refer them to immigration and that was the end of it Right. All secondary
2: then would have been referred. Yeah.
1: And the big difference at the time was that American citizens could travel on driver's license. Right. You didn't see as many. When you saw a passport, it's because
2: this was someone that was from a different country. Yeah. And in terms of the contingent that you were hired with at that time was. Was the other, were the other officers that you were hired with similar to you in terms of that demographic, like sort of young, many of them, people that were in school or recently out of school um, with a similar level of experience? Well, who I came
1: in with was, it was a a student program through the government of Canada. So everybody was in university. That's right.
0: The uh, founding lawyer at this firm did that program and he was also a student, uh, CBSA summer student. But that yeah. was way before it was CBSA. Yeah, yes,
2: I and- definitely remember that when there was just like everybody at the border seemed like they were a summer student, just doing their summer job.
1: Oh, in the summer, yeah, everybody everybody was was a summer student because they would rehire you the year after and the year after, as long as your uh, your degree was going on, right? Yeah. So, but it was people from any kind of different uh, backgrounds. Uh, mm-hmm. I was in communications in university. Uh, my best friend who I met there, we were still best friends today, uh, was uh, in physiotherapy. Okay. Um, a whole bunch of different and pretty much the only thing we had in common, everybody, is that we were bilingual, French
2: and English. Right. That's about it. And in terms of the screening, like, did you have to do all sorts of the public service exams and all of that sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, there, uh,
1: there was a written exam that I had to do. Uh, I had to go through an interview. Um Funny part about the interview is that I almost never got a job with CCRA because I showed up three and a half hours late for my interview. <laughs>
3: um,
1: what I got is that um, I was supposed to go on a certain day and then they rescheduled it for the week after. But in my head, I took it that it was at the same time that it was originally scheduled. So I showed up at the interview at four o'clock mm-hmm. and yeah. the security guard at the entrance like, no, you were scheduled for one. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I just <laughs> so he's like well let's just wait and we'll see and so i just sat there and then this guy showed up and he's like oh yeah he's like we, we thought you got lost we didn't know where that little that the name of my little town was maple grove he's like we didn't know where maple grove was we thought we got lost. you got lost and i'm like yeah. no i didn't get lost this is my story he's like oh, okay well let me see if i can help you out there. but it's kind of too late everybody's gone for now so we'll we'll give you a shout back yeah. So I walked away from the office with my head between my legs. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just missed it. Okay. And I got a call well, back.
2: Yeah, go ahead. I, I was just interested in pivoting back to to the kind of um, the reorientation of the department around 9-11. And um, I mean, you've talked about how you saw a big shift. So I'm interested in in, first of all, how you saw the culture shifting, but also... What retraining happened at that time? Um, you know, once once the once the department was realigned under the new pillars.
1: Well, when I first uh, when I first started, uh, the only couple pair of handcuffs we had in the office were locked in the superintendent's office, mm. and gradually everybody started having handcuffs. Right. So first, the first thing that showed up as far as training is concerned was the use of force training. Mm that everybody had to go uh, to the, CV, the CCRC, CVSA, CBSA college and do the use of force training, do the officer's power training because with with the use of force came the part where um, officers could now uh, execute warrants. They could arrest people for uh, drunk driving and a couple of things at the time. So that, that was a big uh, step forward. And for me being new there, being 22 or 21 at the time, it wasn't that much of a deal, but for some of my colleagues who have been doing this for 25 years already, 30 years already, to go from a pure tax collector that every to anything you carry at your belt is a couple of stamps, to go to adding a baton and pepper spray and handcuffs and notepad, because you'd been a whole bunch of things like this. That was, I think that was more of a, a scare and a shift for people who had been there for a long time than than me and the new guys, right? Me and the new guys, we, uh, we saw how everything was shifting. We saw everything was changing for them. They had been doing their, their job forever with nothing. So they they, they didn't see really the need of having uh, this baton or this uh, pepper spray attached to their belt and which made them a target to people who wanted to cause harm. Right. As the mm-hmm. poor little student who carries nothing he's no threat to you if you're trying to smuggle something across the border but the other guy next to him that carries some sort of a weapon yeah no that that opened that opened a few eyes uh, let me yeah
0: and the arming initiative began what 2006 seven
1: 2007 I think yeah
0: 2007 yeah yeah which was when so you then in 2007 became Went from being a border services officer to an intelligence analyst in Montreal. Yeah. Um, Do you want to just describe what what does an intelligence analyst for CBSA do?
1: So basically, um, intelligence for CBSA is split in two parts. There's the intelligence officer that will collect the information. Yeah. And the intelligence analyst that will get the information from the officer, put it all together and make sense of it.
0: What type of information are we talking? Is this like information for visa filing or people who might be, be for, in Canada? Or?
1: It could be for, if you talk about immigration, it could be for smugging rings. It could mm. be for uh, documentation. It could be for a bunch of things like this. In regards to customs, it's uh, drug importation, firearms importation, tobacco importation, and different uh, different aspects like this. So it, it, it had a broad range of um, of things to do that were completely different uh, as an analyst i worked on projects that were related to uh, smuggling of uh, money into canada laundering money into canada i yeah. also had cases where it was uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs okay. i also was so just like on- you're
0: looking at like port of entry officer notes and like determining trends or themes yeah. that type of thing yeah
1: yeah, it mm-hmm. could be something like that, or it could be source information mm-hmm. that would come in, then you would have to just go through it and see what can be used, can, what can be uh, created in some sort of a document that could be presented to border services officers to help them do their job better.
2: So for the first five years, it sounds like you were working at a port of entry, and then after that, you were doing more the analytics work and um, and doing in in sort of more intelligence where, yep. uh, and perhaps you were receiving um, intelligence reports from other partner agencies, I would imagine, like from yep, RCMP for, perhaps, yep. and for, um, um, you know, from other sources of information, and then, um, uh, and, and then feeding that information, perhaps to border, border services, but not, not strictly working at the ground level um, as a border officer.
1: Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah, that's, okay, that's what it, it was uh, as an intelligence analyst,
2: yeah. Okay, okay, understood.
0: And is that a common, Just so then you go from that to inland enforcement officer, is that a common, like, in-between, between being a border services officer and an inland enforcement officer?
1: No, actually, the intelligence analyst is a uh, higher level than an um, inland enforcement officer if you regard in pay grade.
3: Oh, mm-hmm. so yeah, that so
1: makes I- sense. So yeah. basically, I, I got the intelligence analyst job on a uh, temporary basis. It lasted two years. It was supposed to be four months to start. Yeah. And after the two years, they, um, they decided to cut down on positions. So I was sent back to the port of entry. Oh, okay. But, at the, but the, at the time, I was able to, um, to make contacts with a whole bunch of people within inland enforcement because I worked uh, a couple of immigration files. Mm. And that's how the door opened for me with uh, with inland enforcement. Right, that I got to meet a few people, and uh, I had a few friends who I played hockey with who were inland enforcement officers that knew me, and that uh, when some openings were came about, they just reached out to me and say hey, you should apply for this.
2: And so maybe explain for for the listeners what the inland enforcement officer positions involve.
1: So the inland enforcement. Uh, an officer position it's it, the word says it's enforcement so the main part of the job is to enforce the immigration and refugee protection act mm-hmm. so in in layman terms is going after individuals in canada who should not be in canada who are illegal in canada or who will commit crimes and or breach some parts of the immigration act in canada mm-hmm. And from there, to take action on the file in regards to reporting, in regards to deporting, or in regards to just issuing warnings.
2: But if I'm not mistaken, by the time that the case ends up with an inland enforcement officer, the investigation has essentially concluded. Am I right? No, not necessarily. Oh, not necessarily. Okay. No,
1: there's times it will be because there's investigations that will be done at the port of entry and be sent to inland enforcement. But inland enforcement is split up in two groups. There is the investigations part and there's the removals part.
2: Okay. And you were part of the removal section or you were part of the investigation?
1: I worked both, uh, but mainly removals. Okay. Uh, when I was in Montreal, I was only removals. Okay. Uh, Montreal was a way bigger office than Calgary was. There was probably sixty officers at the time in Montreal, mm-hmm. so uh, my squad was removals, and I—that's pretty much what I did. When right. I it, got to Calgary, it's more all together. There's smaller office about there was about fifteen officers, and you do a little bit of everything.
0: So okay. it's kind of proportional to the population of the city, the size of the two offices, or. <sighs>
1: Well I don't know uh, Montreal probably has three times the population of Calgary and, and about they had four times yeah they had yeah they had four or five times the number of officers yeah that would uh, that would make sense
0: Is it just there's more work in Montreal or no there's
1: well I think I think the I think Calgary grew up really fast and the government mm. of Canada didn't realize that and didn't grow the workforce that they had on the ground here in Calgary And we're playing they've been
2: playing catch-up ever since then. i see so i understand pretty clearly what the removals officers do um you know and in my experience they're the ones that are like oh hey there's a warrant out or you know you're now removal ready and we're going to make arrangements for your removal to your country of citizenship that sort of thing um but maybe you can just help us understand a little bit what the investigations officers, inland inland enforcement officers do? What's the day-to-day work there?
1: Uh, Well, the investigations part, when you say uh, there's a warrant, well, investigations officer will go after warrants. They will be the ones um, executing those warrants. Right. Uh, Investigation officer will build. So what they will do is that they will build a file before it's reported. Okay. uh, Before... um, removal order is issued. And once the removal order is issued, they'll be transferred to removals. Okay, I see. So
0: maybe I'm like, I always thought in Vancouver, because when I would say go with someone to CBSA, they're taking notes to determine whether, say they worked without authorization, depending on you know uh, the result of the investigation, it was the same officer who would issue the removal order. And I guess in my case, Uh, clients voluntarily departed Canada but then so is there a separate group that just like when you say removals is that the like people who are escorting on the plane or is Vancouver unique in that one officer may do both the investigation and the writing of the report
1: no one officer may do uh, everything in one file it's
0: entirely
3: possible yeah Yeah.
0: but they usually
2: do now have um, the officer who Prepares the, the report, executes the warrant, and then they will still transfer it to a removals officer who will Correct. make like they a do have like some, some officers like, that are more
1: specialized, specialized yeah. in different parts. Yeah. But uh, it, like in Calgary, I did everything I did yeah. reports, I did removals, I did escorts, I did everything.
2: Yeah. I think now they've articulated it more because of COVID, because the removals process is more complicated, because they like, have to arrange testing and itineraries and all this kind of stuff. So I think that they have started doing the, you know, the the investigative and the, the removals yeah. officer have have split off again, even in Vancouver. So um, okay, so that makes sense. I think I understand the distinction now.
0: On the investigation side, what's the average like at any given moment? What's the average number of files that you're working on? Like, it would you say on. it's under? Like, do you think it's understaffed, overstaffed? Um, like the the different off? I guess absolutely
1: understaffed.
0: Understaffed. Yeah.
1: Um, there was a um, a review of caseload in Calgary that was done when I first got here, maybe to a 2015 that said that if calgary wanted to get rid of their backlog of files they needed to hire 75 officers full time for 1 year without any new cases coming in hmm. right
0: and what determines case load is it just like would a case be everything from a tip that someone might be say working without authorization to someone with a criminal record that needs to be removed to unenforced removal orders? Like what gets encompassed in there?
1: Well, it, it's it's all of this, right? The, yeah. the, the caseload is all of it, right? It depends on what the flavor of the day is, I would say. It depends on what is going on, right? Someone, uh, if uh, Calgary police will arrest someone and catches a warrant, regardless of the reason of the warrant, it's a priority to action on it. Of course, uh, there's files who are prioritized over others. I will say that back then, criminals and uh, organized crime and terrorism and war crimes were prioritized over uh, working illegally. Yeah, but it depends on what shows up that day and how uh, and what the case is and how it needs to be uh, to be taken care of.
0: How much autonomy? do you did you have over what you were working on on a given day like does as do people work individually is it top down is it like almost like you'd see in tv where there's you know everyone's sitting in a room and someone at the front says here's what we're focusing on today um like how did the day-to-day like setting priorities for the day go
1: files were assigned by the managers of different sections to officers yeah and it was pretty much you uh you manage your own time. You take care of your files. They need to be done. But if something shows up, you can have to drop everything off and just have to go do something else. Yeah. It, it was not something that was set that every day we'd walk in and have a plan. No. Every day you walk in, get to your desk and have a look at what you need to do. And try to uh, move forward on a couple of files until somebody else shows up. Something else shows up. Something else happened,
2: You have to start over. Yeah. But do you have, as a as an inland enforcement officer, do you have a fair bit of autonomy in terms of like, is is your manager going to tell you how you have to handle your file, or so you you, you print like the 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 officer has a fair um, and, and I mean, part of this is, I know that as practitioners, we saw a very dramatic shift in terms of how inland officers treated their files. Um, I wish I could remember what year it was when the language of the app changed so that it didn't say that enforcement had to occur as soon as reasonably practicable into that the enforcement had to occur as soon as possible. I think it was 2013
0: as the faster removal of uh, foreign criminals. Foreign
2: criminals. Yes. And that, I mean, even though that was the name of the act, the language applies equally to everyone, whether or not they were a criminal or not. Um, And so, um, so I think that that, that sort of goes to my question around discretion and how much people were being managed, because I know that, that that mandate to remove as soon as possible, um, you know, is something that we do hear a lot from inland officers. So I think that this goes to my question about like, how much discretion does an inland officer truly have in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, how they're going to manage their files? Um, anyways, I'm just, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that.
1: Well, I don't think there's a, um, so when a file was assigned to me, there was no timeline that was set with the file,
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, unless it was a detained case. In cases of detention, there's there's something at the end of the at the end of it, right? There's a right. 48 hours detention review. There's a seven day detention review. There's a possible long term detention. So in those cases, the priority would be put on it, to, and there was more pressure that was put on the officer to to act on it as soon as possible. Of course. Uh, in regards to other files, um, as I mentioned earlier, you could be sitting at your desk and working on a file and trying to advance it. But then get a call from the police and there's a warrant that comes out and everything needs to be dropped and you start over and you have to go and now this file becomes a detained case, which takes priority over the other file that you work. So in regards to autonomy, I, I've never really had, I've never really been pushed much by higher management, except on very specific cases, right, where it was of media attention or it was something yeah, that was a priority, sure. right? But no, there was not much oversight or oversight might not be the word, but the not much control from the higher management on the timeline of how this yeah. needs
2: to be acted upon. So there wasn't an environment of micromanagement, essentially.
1: No, I, I've never really seen that. No.
0: So mm-hmm. like one um, file that I worked on was uh, was for a failed refugee claimant. And a Canada Border Services officer told my client that he was going to grant deferral. We should talk about deferral more because that was
3: mm-hmm. probably
0: yeah. the bulk of questions that we got. But then the um, CBSA officer said that he would grant the referral. I can't remember how long it was supposed to be for. He the left the room, the deferral. Yeah, mm-hmm. he left the room, came back in about five minutes later and said, you know what? I really wanted to grant that referral. But my supervisor just said no, and I don't want to do this, but I, I ha- you have to go now and I can't grant the referral. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, just wondering what actually like does go on in terms of like, did that, is that something you would have seen? Or is that maybe an officer kind of punting, not the actual decision, but like, I don't want to say making up that a supervisor said it, but like, yeah, I guess not making, I don't know a better word to use than making up, but to kind of deflect, like, I guess my, the clients, any feelings that my client felt from the officer towards, you know, the, the, the the supervisor.
1: Yeah. I can't say if that was the plan or whatever. Um, I, all I can say is that in regards to decisions an officer make most of the time they'll go and run it through their supervisor just to say here this is what I got. This is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, are you okay with it? Right. But there's no official process in the deferral request. There's no official process that the officer that receives a deferral request has to make an opinion, bring it to supervisor and supervisor has to approve it.
3: Yeah. It's
1: not like if you uh, talk about procedural fairness letters and referral to an admissibility hearing for permanent residents, which has to go through that. The managers, uh, the manager after recommendation from an officer, in deferral, I I did probably two hundred deferral requests in my career, and I, it was my own, it was me. Uh-huh. And is that right. just
0: an organizational culture thing? Whether that individual officer would feel comfortable not ignoring their supervisor, but if the supervisor says, "I'm not," I think you should do this like how common is it that it you know an officer would say well actually i want to go this way just from like an organizational behavior like it,
1: it was also it was always a conversation right yeah. to me I, I, it was always a conversation i'd go to my manager or supervisor and say hey here's what i think here's what the case is and what do you think and then he he or she would put forward what their thoughts are and we'd have a conversation but to have a decision overturned didn't happen to me very often. Yeah. In certain occasions, it might have, but it didn't really happen very often. It might have been also in my late late years in Calgary, um, the manager of the removals uh, side didn't really know anything about deferral requests because he had never done any. Yeah. So he would rely on the officer's experience in order to do so.
2: The thing about deferral requests is I mean, in my experience, um, is that I think that, you know, in dealing with clients, I would say clients sometimes don't appreciate that a deferral can't be indefinite. You know, you can't just seek a deferral because you don't want to go home.
3: Yep.
2: And, so, um, and so I think when a deferral request is made, and it's a deferral request for a discrete period of time, it's obviously going to be far more palatable to an inland enforcement officer. So to say, I don't want to go home because I don't want to go home obviously is not, it's not a reasonable or realistic deferral request. But if you're, um, for example, if you're a failed refugee claimant and you have a pending spousal application and that application has been pending for 10 months and you have some reasonable expectation that the spousal application is going to be approved in three or four more months, and you've already put in a request to IRCC, like then you can make a discrete and, um, you know, a, a deferral request that has like a specific time frame around it, you know. And so, um, the 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 concern and confusion that I get is when a discrete deferral request is made for a specific period of time, and those deferral requests come back without any, um without any success. Because in those situations, you know, we're taught, especially in the pandemic, you know, and, you know, you're finding now somebody's going to have to make an ARC application and they're, you know, they're making an ARC application, perhaps in a country where there's no visa office, there's no ability to get biometrics, they don't, you know, it's not, um, they're in a more negative situation with respect to COVID. And um, like Steve says, sometimes we get a lot of sort of Um, very vague answers in terms of why the deferral is unacceptable like you know that um no it's um you know you've had enough time to understand that this um this removal order is going to be executed you know i think that it would be helpful i think for us and for um for Um, For our listeners to understand what types of things get considered in those backroom conversations as to why a deferral request may or or may not be acceptable under those circumstances. When we know that there's every likelihood that that application is going to be approved and the person is going to come back, but they might be separated from their spouse for like another year because of the fact that they're going to have to make an ARC application that may or may not be successful.
0: And actually, I think you, so I mean, we should mention that you, and I will in the intro to this podcast mention that. You actually help both individuals, lawyers, and consultants prepare um, deferral of removal requests. And also, I think, A44, I don't know what to call them, do not do A44 requests. Um, So what what do you see as like the top things that uh, lawyers, consultants, individuals are are either not doing or should know when they're making Mm -hmm. these requests?
1: Well, yeah, that that's one thing I, that I've started doing when I have CBSA is I opened up to uh, to lawyers and consultants to give uh, another perspective to their files. Mm. Um, and one thing I always I, I always see when I consult, like on deferral requests, is that as an officer, what what I wanted to see is that I wanted I wanted it to be clear what you were requesting. Yeah, if there was any ambiguity in the request, then there was a way better chance that it was not gonna be granted, right? right? If, uh, if there was a specific time in regards to it, and it was justified by facts behind it on why you the individual wanted the deferral request, um, this would have more consideration. But if there was an underlying there that, okay, you're requesting three weeks for a specific reason, but then in three weeks, something else happens. So that's gonna delay the removal even more. And then delaying the removal even more will lead to something else that might delay it even more. Then it comes to what, we're, what we what you were saying, Dan earlier, is that it's it, it can become indefinite at one point.
3: Yeah, exactly. And that for
1: the officer, it's impossible to grant an indefinite uh, deferral of removal. It's mm-hmm. um, I always said to lawyers or clients at the time is like. I have very limited discretion as an officer as to reasons why and time on which I can um, defer removal, right? In a situation where is there a travel document that's valid on file and then uh, individual is requesting for three weeks deferral, but then the passport's going to be expired. Well, that's something to consider um, the spousal. Yeah. Okay. There's a, it's been 10 months. There might be a few more months, but, Um, what did IRCC say? What information do they have? Do they expect something? That's something that that need to be looked at. Um, There's a whole bunch of uh, factors that come in and it's all about how it is presented to the officer. And what what I try to say to when I do uh, consultations right now is make it in a way that the officer cannot say no. Mm -hmm. If everything is there, if all the details are there, if it doesn't leave room for interpretation, you have a way better chance of getting those granted than not. And for it works sure. the same thing, uh, Steve, uh, when we uh, when we talk about um, um, deferral uh, referral to the uh, inamissibility hearing, the the a forty four, is if you come forward with your your. Procedural fairness letter, your response to it, and your documentation that accompanies it, if it's clear there's a plan, there's something put together that makes sense, it's way easier for the officer to side with the possibility of not referring it, maybe issuing a stern warning letter, than something that comes forward and plays victim, someone that comes forward and plays victim, or it's not my fault that I was framed and this, and Mm -hmm. doesn't show Mm -hmm. any remorse, doesn't have a plan for reinsertion doesn't have anything that shows on the file that will say that he's not going to do that again
0: on the uh, referral actually verbally saying it by just not acting and was that something you saw done at all or
1: i might i might have forgotten about a file or two here and there in my, yeah
0: and,
3: mm-hmm. you know i've certainly sat seen on it on the before. corner of
1: desk it's it's possible yeah, yeah. something it's possible it might have been a whole bunch of factors it might have gone to uh, the manager or supervisor after, and that individual didn't agree and yeah. sent it back to the officer to reconsider. It might have gone to the hearings officer who looked at it and like, hey, I don't think we can go anywhere with that, right? Or yeah. it might have just literally, um, like I said earlier, he, the officer was working on it and then he planned on working on it the next day. And then the next day, there is this big Born case that showed up, and then got sidetracked into this. Worked on it. I worked on it for two weeks, and then something else happened, and then something yeah, else something happened, else. Yeah. and then yeah. something else happened, and then you just
2: lose track of time. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I've had another file that, that happened like that, Steve, where there was a, there was a you know a forty four report there was an allegation and they said that there was going to be a 44 report that that never that never arose um and meanwhile the permanent residence application was pending and i think that it's just again like maybe those submissions eventually maybe they 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 kind of um they were percolating (laughs) yeah and so uh and so it just it did have some effect and so they're just it, it it impacted on the officer's motivation to proceed um and so the referral just never happened and yeah. so
1: that that's entirely possible because i'm i'm gonna tell you as an officer there's files that i was assigned to that there's no way i wanted to work on. yeah right you realize right. you realize the situation that's there you have a job to do but you're also a human you're also a real person mm-hmm. that realizes what's at stake here and should i really put my energy on this little family that's failed refugees that need to go back or should i put my energies on this uh, person who's got a long criminal record
3: yeah, yeah that's right yeah, you
1: don't i didn't agree with every file that was assigned to me i worked yeah. them the best to do the best of my uh, capability but yeah not necessarily all the time with a big smile on my
3: face
0: are there quotas
1: I was never given a quota in regards, not like it is in visa offices where you have to approve this amount of
2: files in a day.
1: Yeah. Uh, in regards to removals, I've never seen anybody impose any quotas on me. You know.
2: Going back to the deferral request thing a little bit, which is that um, I have noticed as a practitioner that there's something of a sweet spot in terms of time. Like if I'm requesting a deferral that's three weeks long, it's... You know, it's different than requesting a deferral that's three months long. And you know, like, you know, it's like, you know, when you're kind of pushing, pushing the, the limit in terms of what is a reasonable request. And and as you said, um, Carl, that um, if it's a request that could vary easily end up getting pushed out and pushed out and pushed out you just kind of know that that's one of those things that's going to push the edge of what the officer is going to consider tangible but as you said it sort of um part of it is it is part of it is just about the culture because as you said it's not really about something fixed or rigid rule that this is where that line is. It's kind of a line in the sand. And so I think what it goes back to in the end of the day is just about what the culture is. Um, That's what
1: immigration is. Immigration is not black or white. It's all gray. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's no, there's no black or white. There's no point in immigration where you can say, this is the line. If you cross it, there's something else. There's always interpretation. There's always factors to consider. There's always views, uh, depending on your experience as an officer, on the things you've seen, where you come from, situations are gonna be seen differently and interpreted differently. So it's, yeah, it's never black or white. It's
2: completely gray. My question think, about this though, is just, is just what would you, like how would you describe overall as the culture, like the working culture in in the, office, the various offices that you've worked on. I mean, I think that you've described the culture as shifting over time. Um, you know, that there was a different culture when you started and it was a group of young students and everyone was kind of happy-go-lucky and it was not a gun culture. It was not an enforcement culture, but I'm kind of interested in maybe even just at the point that you left the department, how would you describe the working culture and the CBSA culture? Um, uh... Or the
0: difference between Montreal and Calgary.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm just interested in um, some of that. We hear the, from your the your Department
0: of and... Justice that it's super different in Toronto from the way it is uh, in Vancouver.
1: There, I've seen lots of differences between different areas. Um, if you look at uh, the Immigration and the Refugee Board from... Uh, what it was in Montreal, than what it was in Calgary, which was the Vancouver division. It's two different worlds. When I showed up in Calgary, um, I um, I used to write detention notes in an email to um, the hearings officer. And say, these are my notes. This is, this is why I think uh, this uh, person should stay in detention. I got to Calgary and I tried to do that. And I was told, what are you doing? It needs to be on an official statutory declaration that's countersigned by another officer. And I'm like, what is that? Right. And this same organization across Canada with two different boards, two different ways of doing things. Yeah. It has leveled out a lot over the years. And I think it was all the same across Canada at the time that I left, but culture. I, I'm not too sure, Deanna, what you're expecting as an answer onto on culture is, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think the culture is very different in regards to law enforcement, uh, across Canada, the way that the work is carried out is different, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: but the idea behind it is all the same, right? The outcome or the goal of it is all the same. I've worked in Montreal and Calgary and no, the the goal is to uh, remove individuals that need to be removed, is to find uh, individuals in Canada who shouldn't be here and report them and lead them to the removal process yeah uh, the way is it's done was completely different in the two cities yeah um i i always like to say that uh the quebec region does whatever they
3: want yeah
0: <laughs> i guess they also what I'm have the most at... like quebec must also they have the most um maybe i'm wrong on this I, I, my understanding is they have the most people crossing say the recent increase in irregular migration seems concentrated in quebec whereas we th- I think, and again, I could be wrong. Uh, there's just less of that out here.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. Of course, um, the Roxham Road in Quebec and all of this was. Um, there is, if I'm not mistaken, there's over a hundred unguarded roads uh, between the U.S. and Canada and the province of Quebec.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is yeah. that from so just my farm roads or country roads that you can just drive up and down, and there's nobody. There's no port of entry.
0: Yeah, I was looking at a Google map earlier to figure out which crossing you were at, and I thought, wow, that's a lot of roads. Huh.
1: That, and and Lacolle is uh, Col is the third, fourth, or fifth biggest in Canada. It's the direct route between Montreal and New York City. Yeah. So, but, no, it's... Uh, now, in regards to, again, in regards to culture, yeah, Quebec does whatever they want. I, uh, I always gave the example that I showed up in Calgary with... Uh, Polo shirts made the CBSA and everything that the Office of Inland Enforcement and in Quebec had purchased off of their own, their own budget, and Calgary wasn't doing that. And they 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 looked at me like, "Where did you get that? How did that work?" And that opened some eyes, right? Yeah. Um, but in in regards to uh, to how the work is done, even though it might be a little different, out on how it is brought forward. I think the outcome is, it ends up being the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: What are some examples? Like, have you had seen scenarios where counsel is not helping their client or things that counsel does to the detriment of who they're representing? Oh
1: yeah. It's like in any kind of work, right? There's shitty people everywhere.
0: So what would be an example of like, like the types of things, not the name of Um, but like the types of things.
1: You know, I don't have a specific example that comes up, but some sorts like you're sitting in a detention review and the lawyer is going on and on and on about, about the individual and what he's done. And, uh, and the more you listen to him, the more you're like, Oh my God, you're painting him as being someone that's completely unreliable. You just stop talking at this point. You're, you know, <laughs> you, you see the face of the earrings officer was kind of big, I was big smile because she or he's like, well, he just made my case for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right or um, very aggressive lawyers that will come in an interview and try to take over and not let the individual answer questions and try to bully the officer into making a decision. To me, that's that's a huge no-no. If you come in, if you used to come in into an interview with me as a lawyer and you try to push me and try to bully me and try and raise your voice and try to show that you know more than what I do, it's gonna be a long. Relationship, it's not going to go well. So right? I, I think that I have it, wondered,
0: like I've always wondered, if there are lawyers who take almost a grandstanding approach in the uh, in the room. Oh,
1: for sure. Well, there there are lawyers who want to give a show.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Everywhere I've seen some of them in Montreal. I've seen some of those in Calgary. Uh, absolutely, there's lawyers and consultants who want to give a show. There's the ones who uh, who take it personal if you say no. Right, to get very emotional in a in an interview, it's not their case. They're and and I've seen that more on the consultant side than the lawyers. Yeah. But Gary getting very emotionally involved to the point where tears would come out or voices would be raised and anger would show up, and you're like, well, I haven't said anything wrong here. I'm just explaining what the situation is. Yeah. Uh This or uh, as you say, the grandson, someone where the officer is trying to explain something and uh, consultant lawyer barges in and cuts him off and say, oh, well, yeah, that, that's what he means. That's what he's trying to say, like like wanting to show their client that they know what they're talking about and they're there for them.
0: Yeah. Where One question I- that uh, an articling student once asked that just came to me was, and it was for, um, I can't remember if it was uh, an interview about working without authorization or the 60 day deferral for espousal, but it was will the CBSA officer care if I'm wearing a suit and tie?
1: That's, the, it's kind of a funny question. <laughs> right?
0: It's the type he, of thing though, that I'm sure every lawyer has thought when they go to CBSA for the first time, do yeah. I need to dress like I'm going to court? Do I, you know, mm-hmm. should I be less formal? Like. Well,
3: there, there,
1: there, <laughs> I'll tell you a story in regards to this. There was a lawyer in Montreal that, uh, this uh, I I hadn't been doing this for very long, and I never I'd never seen this lawyer before. And I'm sitting at the table, and I'm asking questions to the uh, the client. And I'm like, uh, "Would you like your lawyer to be advised of this?" And the guy sitting next to them is like, "Well, the lawyer is right here." But he was there with his hair all over the place, a grayish <laughs> t-shirt, jeans, and. I had no clue. He was, I thought, oh, maybe he's a friend of the family that just showed up. No idea he was a lawyer. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, it might have a, a little bit of an impact and give it a little bit of credibility, but I don't think it's going to it's gonna change the decision at the end. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, that lawyer in a T-shirt was kind of like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I didn't know.
2: Yeah. I think that where my question about culture comes from is that... I mean I certainly have seen um a shift just in the time of my practice which I'll admit is getting quite um I just remember the days like in the early days when I was like a junior lawyer and going in there felt like there was a very relaxed and more kind of um I don't know. It's just it's just different. Like when I go in now to to accompany a client to meet with a removals officer, they're wearing a flak jacket, you know, there's very like the language is like you're under arrest, you know, and it's like, here's the da, da da da. And again, it's the same. It's the end of the day. It's the same thing. Like we're still like, um, oftentimes, like I always call in advance I say here's my client's intention they're intending to comply with the terms of their warrant their intention is to completely like cooperate you know so we've said at the very beginning that they understand that there's a warrant out there intending to comply they're intending to to be removed but again it's just like the culture is that like and I understand that there are different safety considerations now than there was at the beginning this was prior to 9-11 when I used to go in but it's still that in terms of the like client going in this is a client who's not a criminal risk this is a client who's a failed refugee claimant walking into the office like it's just a different office environment obviously and even though some of these interviews may be even happening online it's still like the language that they're receiving it might very well be a very young officer but it's like it, it's just much more stark the interview yeah. than they used to be. you know, It's not like, hey, I'm real sorry, you know, this is what we have to do, but it's yeah. very like it feels more like law enforcement.
1: <laughs> well, that's what it is. And I've seen I've seen that that change since you know I started that law enforcement in 2009, and I've seen it evolve mm-hmm. when um, you know in 2009, not all officers were armed. Right? There still was, as I mentioned earlier for uh, when I started that customs, uh, there's still officers who have been doing that for 25 years, and they used to do and not go and knock on doors and uh, do a warrant in a house with just a pair of handcuffs with them, mm-hmm. right? Nothing else. And yeah, the culture has changed in regards to this because CBSE wants to be recognized as a full law enforcement agency. Mm-hmm. So full law enforcement agency. Well, there's risk to come coming to that, right? Mm-hmm. So the officers are built into expect the worst hope for the best
3: mm-hmm.
1: right so if you go into um an interview where there's some sense where there might be an arrest there might be a confrontation there might be something it's policy to wear your tools totally it's um a warrant is not done without tools anymore yeah uh, anything that's related to criminals Someone that has a criminal record, even though very compliant and willing to cooperate, there's the criminal aspect to it where tools are required. So, so it's it's there has been a shift of culture and that absolutely. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, so I, I guess I'm lucky th- in that I've never had a client detained at an investigation or removal interview. What actually happens? Like, is it the officer? Because I know the officers also wear guns. Like, is it the officer who makes the arrest or does security come in? But, Steve, I'm not
2: even talking about where there's a detention. Like, I'm talking about even when there's a full intention to release the person with Oh, no, I know that's what
0: you're uh, referring to, but just in terms of, like, it is a law enforcement culture. Like, how does that actually um, happen in the room?
1: Well, in regards to an interview, uh, an officer walks into an interview with with an individual that... uh, is announced that he needs to leave Canada. and will be uh, effective in three weeks, and blah blah blah. And the um, the individual says, "No, I'm never going to go. I'm not going to leave."
0: Yeah. And but the officer does the arrest, like in Vancouver. The room, like, seems like there's barely even room for the CBSA officer to come around well, the, the table. So the is interviewing
1: there... officer will will uh, do the arrest. Okay. And then proceed the 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 individual to the detention area where everything else will be done.
0: And like, do they call in security? Cause oftentimes like, you know, if there might, you might just in terms of the risk of like a scuffle during the arrest, like it's, uh, I'm, well, security, I guess I'm just security, surprised. So security, security does is not going to do anything. Oh, security is not going to do anything.
1: No security. They're there. The, the guards who were there for detention. They're just guards for detention. They're just there to, if something happens to call an officer, the officer is, uh, is the one that will, if there's a fight, that ends up it's the officer that's going to, that's going to be uh, involved.
0: So what did you always make sure that like you outnumber at least the, when you're doing, like, I'm just having a hard time visualizing at least in the layout in Vancouver. Um, Cause I didn't know that, that the officer is the one who uh, makes the arrest. Yeah.
1: I've done, I've done interviews where there was, uh, I was by myself in a room with six people. Yeah. But it's a room that's right next to the office. There's other people just outside. There's cameras in the uh, in, in the room. And so, you know, it's not something, I, as I said earlier, you uh, you expect the worst, but hope for, hope for the best. But you don't show up in there thinking that every single interview is going to end up, you know, in an arrest or in a fight.
2: Yeah. Or
1: else you, we, we'd all have gray hairs after five years. Mm-hmm. But it's, no, it's the, it's the officer that's in charge of the file that takes care of an arrest if it needs to happen.
0: During your time at, uh, were there arrests that went really, like, not sideways where, like, a firearm was drawn, but just where a fight breaks out during the arrest?
1: Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've been into a couple of fights. Yeah. Yeah, it it does happen. It does happen. It's not, it's not as much as what it is in regards to uh, police corps, but, but, yeah, I've seen, I've seen some fights.
2: Yeah. But I think maybe that that is part of where this question comes from is that a part of why the culture is what it is is because the risk is greater than it once was. Is that yeah. sort of where? But I mean, I I guess I don't know. We're making an assumption. Maybe it's always been like that, and it's just that this like I don't know. Uh, um, I think I think
1: of... I think we're more aware of what the risk is now. Not that yeah. there's there might not be more risk, right? Bad guys were bad know. guys in the exactly. 80s, the 90s and 2000s, just as much as they are now. We're just more it, aware of it now. Exactly. We're just more ready for it, right? Yeah. It's something that's more available and more communicated and you have better
2: understanding and better tools in regards to go against it. And what you're saying, like in terms of the wearing more tools, like, um, I, I don't know, it's it's a tricky one for me because... What you're describing in terms of the tools, I totally understand it in terms of when there's an in-person interview. I've been in some of those clogged meetings in that tiny room, um, and I can understand how, as an officer, you would be quite stressed out in case a a fight would break out um, and how you would want to be equipped at the same time, I feel that shift in culture, even in online interviews or on telephone interviews, sometimes it's a different atmosphere than it once was when it was a very casual like, hey, we need you to call in and make these reports, you know, like, here's the travel itinerary, can we talk about making arrangements, like there have been things that have shifted the culture. One of them was... um. You know, nine eleven. We talked about that from the beginning. The second one was the arming of officers, which, as we've said, we're not sure whether or not that was caused by an increase of the risk or just an increase in the tools. The third one was um, the change from as as soon as reasonably practicable to as soon as possible. Like there are a number of factors that have shifted the way that these interviews are conducted, um, and for me, it's just hard to know whether or not that shift has come from an actual increase in the risk or if it's just you know that this is now the process and the change in culture anyways i'm just sort of interested about this in general whether or not um there's a way of bringing back the kind of civility and the kind of like the casualness of that interaction without losing the safety component for CBSA
1: i think it's still well and and again i i've i've never done uh, phone interviews or uh, online interviews—that's pretty much uh, after COVID thing. And yeah, for sure. There's COVID, a lot of that right? Now. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have a hard time trying to figure out how the dynamic of this would go. Right, it's mm-hmm. completely different. You get a completely different feeling of having the person sitting across the table from you.
3: Yeah. Right.
1: Um, I, I saw the shift go, but being an officer, being in there, you don't see it. Go and change from one day to the other. It's gradual, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's always different. It's like uh, you know when you meet a friend of yours that you haven't seen in uh, in twenty uh, in ten years, and you're like, "Oh, you've changed a lot." And then his spouse mm-hmm. like, "Well, not really. He's still the same guy." But you spend every day with this person, so you don't really see it the drastic change as much as someone who hasn't. So it's it's kind of the same thing in there. Um, but I I don't know. I don't know to try to answer. I don't know if it is. Because there's more risk now or just because we we want to think that there's more risk or it's more publicized that there's risk. It's more common and more known. Uh-huh. And in regards to that, you need to um, oppose that risk by doing something yeah. else, which is the tools, which is the bulletproof vest, which is the arming of the officers. Yeah. Uh, I think it's more that than is there really more criminals now than there was
2: back then? Yeah. or do
1: we just know more about it
2: yeah do the officers, certainly more fear, uh, but i don't know if there's yeah. more risk yeah. yeah
0: do the officers do you think want more discretion so i'll give an i'll give an example and it's actually i haven't been practicing as long as deanna but the only shift that i noticed was when the 60-day deferral of removal for someone with a pending spousal yeah. used to be this uh tacit understanding of okay yeah, the policy says 60 days, but in reality, it's granted for the whole spousal. And there was almost this overnight shift around with the Faster Removal of Foreign Criminals Act, where it was Mm -hmm. 60 days becomes 60 days. And the thing that I noticed was the inland enforcement officers seemed to really dislike that all of a sudden it was 60 days and they didn't have at least an automatic ability to do Mm -hmm. the whole period of the spousal. It seemed like it still happened here Mm -hmm. and there. And the other thing I noticed was that the officers, it was funny, like CBSA wound up Advocating to IRCC to say, "Hey, process this file faster." And I used they to. They used
1: to
3: do
0: that. I, well, I, I still find. I mean, I haven't I've had done it. it. Since I've COVID. I've, asked
1: CBA, I, I've
2: asked the I've asked IRCC. To but hurry I used up to joke with
0: uh, clients that the fastest I, I way to get. I haven't been able your... to
2: get somebody to do that. I haven't been able to get somebody to do that for oh, months.
0: I used to joke. Well, not since COVID for me, but I used to joke oh. with clients that the fastest way to get a spousal processed was to be in Canada without status, so that you had CBSA almost acting as
2: yeah. your
0: advocate. So like that shift in CBSA, was it also? But if you look at this, yeah,
1: the the changes in that is that as a CBSA officer, you can see when there's, you know, a base to a spousal application that yeah in sixty days, well, right now I'm trying to effectuate a removal, but then we have a sixty day policy. So we'll put the sixty day policy in effect, but well, please give me an answer within 60 days because I'm not going to spend time and energy on after the 60 day working on a removal to come to a point where there might be a deferral request and then there might be something else and then arrangements and tickets are booked and flights are ready. All while you're just waiting
0: for IRCC to make the determination that you could pretty much make within a few minutes of meeting And then
1: three days before the spousal comes up and like, oh yeah, it's positive. We cancel everything. I know. So people have spent a lot of money. People have lost a lot of energy and time on totally. this. Whereas, well, why not, right? Why didn't we, couldn't you have given us an answer two
2: weeks prior to that? hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's one thing with the 60, the people that are eligible for the 60 day deferral, but people, failed refugee claimants that don't qualify for it mm-hmm. at all. Um, those are the ones that really like break my heart because they don't, they don't qualify for it because they already have a removal order against them and they're getting removed and they need arcs and they're being removed to countries where the VACs are closed. There's no ability for them to get their biometrics done, all this kind of stuff. And I'm finding that like CBSA officers are not getting on the phone and calling IRCC to say what's happening with that spousal application. And, uh, I mean, I had one
0: officer say that a big thing that, like, in the same way that we had noticed that Mississauga was bouncing a lot of them, it became difficult for CBSA to know, like, is the spousal going to be returned? Yeah, Um, for sure. And then what are we kind of, like, stuck with at CBSA?
2: But this is even in cases where like they're giving approval they've already approved in principle the not approved in principle the application, but they've approved the spout the sponsorship. They're now making medical requests that they won't be able to complete in the anyways. I understand, like I know that these are complicated and all that kind of stuff, but it's just um yeah, and, it's and, a spirit of collaboration that I, I used to be able to see that I just I feel like it's part of the general attrition that's like, you're changed, you used to do this stuff. And now you
1: don't, you know, like, yeah, not, not to make excuses for that. But I know, I, yeah. I, do, I do agree that there was more of a collaboration point. at yeah. one time years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the pressure that's put on the officers now in regards to Risk and criminals and everything. So, prioritize those files.
3: Mm -hmm. And
1: the workload that the officers are given brings to a point where if the officers had to contact IRCC on every single case that there's an outstanding application for something, they'd spend half their day doing that.
3: Yeah.
2: But that's what I'm getting at in terms of the working culture. I'm not blaming the frontline officers, I'm getting at the fact that it's like an overall workplace culture where they're under too much pressure. Um, and that like, I'm not saying that the officers are less, they have less humanity. I'm saying that they like, they're under immense pressure, you know, that the that it's a top down issue that, like, you know, yeah, you it's have not to the individual this, that like, has changed no, the no. organization. It's the organizational culture yep. and yep. the mandate of the organization. They're being told, like, it's not, they didn't make the decision to say it's as soon as possible. That was a legislative decision that was made, and they're just administering the act. So I'm not faulting the officers. It's not on them. A lot of them don't like that. It's just, what they're told they have to do, right? It's
0: so, so funny, Diana, because like this is such a like it's such an example of how your perspective on things totally depends, in a way, on oh where God. you start. Because like I started 2011 and 12, or 10 was when I got called. So it's like maybe you know collaboration was up here before, and when I started was at a low. Oh,
3: for sure. And now it's
0: slightly better. So I'm like, hey, things are improving. But yeah. compared to what you saw before, it's probably still very different. Oh, for sure. Different. So and it's, it's such an interesting like thing on perspective and just when for you start. Sure.
2: And when you make a decision as an organization to go from as soon as reasonably practicable to to as soon as possible, all of a sudden you're telling all those inland officers that you can't put this at the bottom of your to-do list. That has to also be at the top. And then it's kind of like, well, you're telling all those inland officers that it's not enough to say, okay, well, I'll deal with those once I've dealt with the really serious cases. You're telling them that this has to be dealt with now. And you're making all those officers crazy because they can't say, well, this is not a case I need to chase right now. Well, especially, for like,
0: The federal court of appeal especially is uh, driving a lot of the strictness, it seems.
2: Absolutely. And so it's sort of like, there's no like, I, I'm not, I'm not pointing my finger at like at, at the, at the, at the officers, because like, again, it's, it's, it's made mandatory by the act. I'm just saying that like, as a, um, as an overall kind of a strategic planning decision by the by the department at the highest level. It just it's a bit crazy making um, As an organizational mandate, because it's sort of like what Chantal said in our podcast yesterday, that if everything is urgent, then nothing really can be, and that it's it's kind of contaminated the kind of the whole culture um, of the organization. And it's meant that things can't properly be prioritized in a way that's about what is the most important in terms of removals and in terms of like what is the most important removals to be able to execute. It's really just everything has to be done right away. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and what I've seen over the years is that what is the flavor of the day as well, right?
3: Mm-hmm. What
1: is in the news? Well, lay the last two years, what's in the news is those uh, individual crossing at illegal crossing in uh, in Quebec, right? So uh-huh. that a lot of emphasis is being put on those cases. Uh, we've had times where it, I remember some years, not exactly the year, where headquarters in Ottawa imposed targets on removals to offices or you had to reach a certain amount of tire of removals by the end of the year. And you're saying, you like, you're saying, Diana, that was putting a lot of pressure on the officers. Cause I remember doing seven or eight interviews in an eight hour shift Oof. in order to initiate fraud or give a pro decision or make removal arrangements just cause by end of March, we needed to reach 1500 removals.
2: Wow. And then when you look at at the
1: time, didn't agree with it.
2: Yes, exactly. And then when you look at the overall mandate of the act, like it's, I understand that it's supposed to be about removal of those who don't have the correct status, but there is also the overall humanitarian mandate of the act. And it's very difficult to reconcile when you have these multiple purposes, right? Because, there's also, like, when you're looking at the, you know, the refugee mandate and our international commitments, like, I understand that it is an enforcement issue that people are coming at non-recognized crossings, but there's also, like, sometimes people are entering, you know, they're you know, there's a lot of intersecting issues here. I think so. a lot of
0: it comes to, again to the Federal Court of Appeal. So I read an interesting memo to the Minister that I got through and in accessed information on the IRCC side and it basically said, "Look, Minister, we want flexibility in when we return applications, but there's this federal Court of Appeal decision which says that there aren't, they aren't even applications. There's little flexibility can be given. So we can't do anything. And I sat there thinking, that was your like, you guys won that case. And it seems to have like, you're the arguments that you made, kind of took on a life of their own. And I've kind of wonder if it's sometimes the same at CBSA, where they get a decision where they're arguing that the decision to not defer was reasonable, and the federal court and the federal court of appeal come out with this, there should be very little discretion, the priority needs to be removal. If the you know, legal team at CBSA then reads that. And all of a sudden it just takes on a life of its own.
1: That, that right. was a favorite quote to write in the response to the deferral request, right? There was a couple mm. of federal court decisions that says, well, the officer has limited discretion. And this. Right. Yeah. so to quote that was easy. And but the right. other saying about the uh, humanity and in, in the job right now, I have a friend of mine who used to work when it was back when it was CIC. And Mm -hmm. then transferred over to inline enforcement with CBSA, and for him, the humanity of the officer disappeared the day that they separated the enforcement branch from CIC.
0: Right. Yeah, we hear that a lot.
1: They just split them up, and like CBSA, you're going to be the bad guys enforcing this and removing people, and then RCC will be the nice guys who approves files or not necessarily nice guys, but they. Just walk away from having to make any harsh decision and sending someone over. And that friend was saying exactly that. He says to me, he says it died that day. We moved from one organization that did both to two organizations that did completely two separately.
2: I understand.
1: Separate things. And that's how it was from from then on.
2: So this kind of brings us full circle. Like ultimately, if an inland officer had full... Autonomy and this, these mandates and this limited discretion weren't an issue, and you got your, it, you got to pick which cases you were going to enforce without these strict mandates and with a really fulsome discretion, you would be able to be like, I'm going to start with the, you know, and I'm being, I'm sort of being caricaturish, but like, yep. you would start with the bad guy. You know, and you would work your way down based on the severity of the reason for which somebody had been um, ordered removed, um, and that's how you would triage your caseload. But basically, um, the the removal of that kind of discretion has prevented you from doing that and made it sort of like every case is treated as if they were the same, so that the reasons for the removal are kind of irrelevant, and it's just. A removal is a removal is a removal, and the discretion is limited.
1: Um, yeah, but it also to a point where it's um, it has taken away the pick and choose part, which is right. to me was not a bad thing because yeah, understood. I see people just you know work one file a week because they wanted to work only after that big high profile yeah. case that was on a warrant, right? Right. Um, there's, there's, and but also it goes to the point as well where you have the opposite argument that, you know, when an officer makes a recommendation for um, a permanent resident to be going to the misibility hearing based on criminality, well, you got the argument from the other side from lawyers from clients that well, does the officer has the capability of doing so? Because you know, in certain situations, when it gets to the misibility hearing, the the board member doesn't have a choice. Uh, Were you convicted of this? Yes. Well, well, here's your deportation order. There's no discretion in there. So I've had discussions with lawyers where they say, well, should the officer be allowed to make that decision to refer that? Do they have the capacity to do so? But then we want them to go to the other side and be able to make the decision on any kind of deferral and grant indefinite deferrals or for any reasons, whenever they feel like it. So there's no middle to this, right? I see that that's part of why it is the way it is, is that you need to have some kind of a frame around everything. So it doesn't go overboard and doesn't go.
0: Yeah. Cause there must also be the risk of like, as you focus, you know, if that officer is focusing for that one week on arguably what's the most important file, that case file in the backlog is just increasing with what I guess you can call the low hanging fruit. Um, I just
2: remember one of my, one of the, one of the, so one case that I argued at the very beginning of my career, um, it's a decision that was um, rendered by Mr. Justice von Finkenstein, and I remember one thing that he said about the way that this case was decided, this was by an IRCC officer, was that He said, it's just these words that he said was that nothing mandates that IRCC decide this case in a mindless or robotic fashion. And I just love these words because it's almost like there's nothing that ties IRCC officers to making their decisions in a mindless and robotic way. But I feel like in some ways that Liberty hasn't really been fully granted to CBSA officers. In some ways, I feel like they, in a, in a, um, I feel like they have been forced in a lot of ways in the enforcement um, environment to make more mindless and robotic decisions because the limit that because their discretion has been so limited in so many ways that there is like. It, it, it allowed like that, you know, there's this saying in law school that like tough cases make for a bad law. And I just feel like it's it's in this in the in the enforcement scheme, the rigidity of the enforcement scheme has made it impossible for inland enforcement officers to make mindful, humane, like reasonable decisions a lot of the time. I don't know if you feel that way or if I've kind of gone overboard in terms of how I've stated it.
1: Well, when I say when I said earlier that uh, in immigration it's not black or white, it's always gray, right? Yeah. Um. The the thing with it is that I think the way that they condition officers is to be black or white. Right. They want them to be black or white, but everybody else around that sees it as gray. So it's really hard as an mm, officer to be able to be straight on a decision. But considering all the factors around, but. Knowing that there's a fine line that you need to follow because you, you don't have the possibility of going any further than this, right? There's there's yeah. no way there's no way for a CBSA and line enforcement officer to grant an indefinite deferral or removal. Yeah. Besides not working the file and leaving it in the corner. But it's always hanging there, it's always standing there, it's not it's not over, right? It's just neglected. It's just
2: They just fail to exercise their jurisdiction as opposed to exercising it in a reasonable way.
1: (laughs) Exactly, which can come back to bite them at once. Exactly, that's right. Right, I've I've seen people having to answer on cases where uh, a file was sitting on a desk for a year on a removal case and it wasn't done and then this person committed a serious crime. Could this have been avoided? Yes,
2: it could have been avoided. Right. But that's, yes, of course, we we have to react to this. Right. That's something big to carry for that person that really yeah. it's a and lot the of. CBSA,
1: like The CBSC to me is is a. Wow. And yeah, they they're a reactionary organization.
3: Of course, they
1: don't plan. They don't make plans expecting something to happen. They just wait for it to happen and react.
2: Well, that puts a really interesting perspective on, you know, there have been a lot of calls for a better accountability system within the CBSA, like within the department. And really, you very you very helpfully characterize where the accountability issue comes, you know, because it's sort of like you're kind of... Um, I don't know, it it creates a real conundrum for an inland officer because um, they're kind of shoehorned into like, that's their only choices, you know, that they, that, that, that. The, the personal accountability of like either you enforce or you carry this personal responsibility of not enforcing and then it's your own like are you acting then as an agent of CBSA or are you acting in your own personal capacity and not exercising your jurisdiction properly which is like a You know, um, just looking at um, that accountability factor, because um, there might be personal liability even there for not executing your role in the way that you're mandated by law to do so like that's that's a lot.
1: And to me, this comes from the law enforcement part of it, right? This is a police officer that if you know where this guy is and you're supposed to go arrest him and you decide that that you're not going because you don't feel like it. Yeah. yeah, And then is... he turns around and he's on the news the next day because he murdered someone. No, in you
0: know, the media, me. CBSA and London enforcement often, you, they can't win. They're either, oh
2: my goodness. you know, they
0: didn't remove someone and it's, well, yeah. how did this person just commit a crime? Or they're the heartless department that is about to remove someone wow. following the law and the minister gets uh, to swoop in and issue the TRP and, as if yeah, saying, and see, savior, my officer. right?" Wow. Yeah. And like, it's just, you know, I can imagine that being frustrating. Wow.
1: And my biggest issue with all of this for the whole time I was with CBSA, and I don't know how many times I've told my supervisor or my assistant director, or whoever wanted to listen to us, is that CBSA doesn't stand for themselves. Yeah. And they they put it all under the privacy. part. Yeah. Oh, we're not going to discuss a specific file because of privacy. Right. And we're not going to discuss our politics and say our policies and see how they go. So we're just going to look like bad guys, regardless of what happens.
0: Yeah, I've always wondered that with how the Privacy Act interacts, like if someone's going to the media and telling a story that's not accurate, the response from government is always privacy concerns. We can't comment, but there is this
1: kind of like judges,
0: how judges can get criticized and they're not really allowed to respond.
1: No, exactly. CBSA won't respond to any of it. They'll just sit there and take the shot and then show the other cheek and then keep going like this. Yeah. Right. Wow. There there would be so many times where they could have just said one thing outside, right. Just to set the record straight, just to look better to make the officer look better. Right. But no. Right. I see.
2: It's like you're on your own buckle. Like, you know that. Wow. That's very fascinating. Um, it sounds like a very alienating kind of experience. So I think you've really, really answered that question yeah. of culture. <laughs> yeah. um, I think I have a very clear picture. It's actually um, helped me in terms of being able to empathize with that perspective of, of what what those officers are facing, um, you know, from that perspective.
0: The uh, Just in looking at the time, I want to go back to what you're doing now. So you help people... Mm-hmm. You're helping lawyers, like lawyers consultants, individuals, or mainly, law- well, anyway, who the client base is. But what you're uh, with deferral requests as well as a44. I don't know how to describe it. Do not oh, refer. I've done
1: I've done a bunch of different uh, consultations over the last uh, a little bit more than a year. Yeah, it can be on deferral requests. My expertise is in regards to enforcement.
0: Yeah. Right. But as so do you do interview CEO, prep as well? Like, uh, where you um, help, yeah. uh, where you get Yeah, retained. that's something yeah. that I've
1: uh, been brought for, brought up to uh, to help with. I've helped with a couple of procedural fairness letters. I've helped with deferral requests. I've helped with um, putting forward packages for marriage fraud or denunciations of certain situations. Uh, I've also, uh, you know, in regards to. Uh, someone that wants to bring forward to CBSA that uh, someone gained access to Canada uh, by frauding mm-hmm. on their marriage. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've helped build uh, some of those cases. Um, I've also helped work on a few applications that go to IRCC because as a CBSA officer, even though I've not really made any decisions on those, I've seen so many, I've read so many, I've seen so many, people being removed after making those applications and reading this decision has brought me to know what was missing. So I've helped lawyers and consultants review some of those files in regards to, um, outstanding sponsorships, uh, see what, what the officer would see when they get that package, what is missing, what could be added to this. Um, uh, it could also be in regards to detention. I, probably been involved in three, two, three, four hundred 400 uh, detention uh, reviews in, in my career that I've written notes for. So I, I have a certain expertise in that. So anything that's regarding an, uh, immigration enforcement, those are things that I can bring, come forward and bring advice for. Um, who I deal with is directly with lawyers. So um, because mm-hmm. I'm not registered as a consultant or registered as a lawyer, I cannot have clients directly and build files and get adv- advice to the to clients directly.
0: Yeah. Do you work with consultants so, as well?
1: I, I've not worked with uh, with immigration consultants yet just because I haven't had that chance, but I would, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's quite a what, few who listen to this. So.
1: Yeah. I'm hired by firms and consultants to help them out. So what they do is they, they bring me in and I have a look at the file and give them my opinion. Give uh, like on the deferral request, I'll see. Well, as an officer, here's what I would respond to this. Here's what you could work on. Same thing on the procedural fairness letter for admissibility hearings. So,
0: yeah. And Interesting. how do people contact you?
1: Uh, they like can contact lawyers. Me How do uh, lawyers
0: and consultants contact you?
1: They can contact me by email at my email, which is cb advising services at outlook.com.
3: Yeah.
1: Or phone number. They can call me directly. My cell phone is always open and I'll uh, return calls. And uh, I can leave the phone number here, or if you want to post it on, your, uh, on the site where the podcast is, it's, uh, it's up to you. But phone number is 587 226 3870. And they can reach out to me and, and that function as well. And I'll be glad to let them know if
2: I can be of any help. Amazing.
3: Yeah, that's,
1: that sounds uh, really
2: fascinating, Carl. This has been really, really interesting.
1: No, it was fun. It's, uh, and, and, you know, and it's something that I've always wanted with CBSA is to be able to reach out to the public and let them know what an inland enforcement officer is. What does the CBSA do? And, you know, how how can you avoid having to be in front of an enforcement officer? Right. Um, I always said that CBSA should have an outreach program where they go to communities and explain to new immigrants, what, what the immigration act is what way what they could face if they do certain things right if they commit crimes even though you're a permanent resident do you know you could lose your permanent residency and be removed for sure and there's none of this that is done i know that calgary police does it in calgary and i tried to piggyback at one point on their program to say hey, maybe once you do those outreach cbsc could come in and give a 30 minutes presentation and just let them know and it just died there with CBSA because it needed to be an idea that came out from Ottawa, not from this little guy in the in the <laughs> middle of the city of Calgary, right? Mm. So it, yeah, it bureaucracy has never been on so. Yeah. And so that's one thing when I when I love the CBSA that I'm like, you know what? I've got some knowledge that I can put forward and help out in different situations. I again I can't go directly to the immigrants themselves, but was the closest person to them. In regards to their files, is the consultants, is the, the the lawyers, and mm-hmm. I can come forward and, and help those guys out. I have a better understanding of what what is needed and what it is.
2: Well, it sounds like a really valuable service.
1: Well, it's been fun. It's been working uh, here and there. It's not something that I do full time, but hey, if it gets to that, it gets to that. Great.
0: Yeah. No. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on. I'm sure.
2: Yeah. Thank uh, you, we'll you so much for touch- joining. Yes, no problem. Definitely. Thanks
1: for having me. Uh, thanks for having me on. And it was, uh, it was fun. It was a good time and uh, good. Uh, you guys enjoy today and uh, good luck with the podcast. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks.